Welcome to the Policy at McCombs podcast, a data-driven conversation on the economic issues of today. In this series, we invite guests into our studio to provide a highlight of their work presented during a visit to the University of Texas at Austin. Policy at McCombs is produced by the Center for Enterprise and Policy Analytics at the McCombs School of Business. I am your co-host, Carlos Carvalho, with my colleague, Mario Villarreal. Our guest today is Bob Lawson, Professor of Economics at SMU and Director of the O'Neill Center for Global Markets and Freedom. He's the co-author of the Fraser Institute Economic Freedom of the World Annual Report and join us today to talk about his recent book, Socialism Sucks, Two Economists Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World. Bob, welcome to Policy at McCombs. Thanks, Carlos. Good to be here. So before we start, uh, uh, let's let's talk about the reason you decided to, to write this book and how did you and Ben Powell decided on the framing and style of it? Well, there's a formal reason for writing the book, and that is the you probably have seen these polls that are coming out of young people saying like 40% of young people saying they have a favorable favorable view of socialism. So that's a little confusing to me. I don't think fa- socialism is a very good system. I don't think it's worked where it's been tried. Um, but a lot of young people say they are. Now, that's the formal reason. The unformal, informal reason is that Ben and I wanted to go to Cuba and drink. And so we figured if we wrote a book about it or wrote a book chapter, we could write it off. So we get a 30% off that way, you know. So it's there's a there was a little bit of self-serving, uh, in the, especially in the beginning. We didn't really know what we were doing. We are just, let's go someplace, write a chapter. And then we went another place, wrote a chapter. It wasn't, uh, honestly, it wasn't that well planned out in the beginning. But the 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 format and narrative, it was definitely targeted to a younger audience, to to a non-academic audience. Yeah, to the try title. To make sure that, right, right. Yeah, okay, the okay. title gives it away. Um, and, and, you know, Ben, I've written a hundred art journal articles and, you know, book chapters. Ben's written a hundred. I mean, we have hundreds of articles that we've written, books. And let's face it, you know what an academic journal article is. I mean, 10 people read the thing. I mean, mm-hmm. and you slave over it for three years. And, you know, of the 10 people, six of them were your, your buddies. I mean, so. Including the authors. Yeah, <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> Not and, even your family. <laughs> so, no, exactly. So we decided we wanted to write a book that regular people would read. And this is a, this is a popular trade press book. It's not an academic press book. Um, there are some footnotes at the back because we're still professors. We can't help ourselves. But uh, at, at the end of the day, if you're going to write a book that regular people are going to read, you can't write another boring journal article. I mean, you, you've got to write a book like this. So I read, I love Anthony Bourdain and P.J. O'Rourke, and uh, and that writing style is what we went for. Uh, I don't know that we can claim to be anywhere in the same league as of those those two great writers, but uh, that was the style we wanted. So, I, you know, I think one of the, the lines is that the publisher came up with is that the book is the bastard stepchild of Anthony Bourdain and Milton Friedman. That's, um, and that, that's, that's what we praise. were going for. Yes. <laughs> we'll let readers decide if we hit it or not. But. Okay, so before we go into specifics of the book, uh, let's take a minute to talk about the Economic Freedom Index. Uh, tell us about that endeavor and, and you know, your, your involvement with it. Sure. So my, my, my day job is to run the center, and a large part of, of that day job includes me working on the Economic Freedom of the World Index that the Fraser Institute publishes and has published every year since 1996. And I've been involved in the project since the early 90s. Um, so what the e- EFW index, as we call it, the, what the index does, is it tries to quantify how economically free a country is. Um, so we want to try to put a number on how capitalist a country is. So in the current index, Hong Kong is number one. It's the most free market place that we rate. The last place we rate is Venezuela. Um, I should mention we don't rate North Korea or Cuba because of lack of data. So they would they would probably you're be, still able to do Venezuela though. Yeah, Venezuela is the lowest uh, rated country that we currently score. It's 162nd out of 162. Uh, so basically trying to put on a sort of a, a number line from one to 162, 
where countries sort of place in terms of freedom, uh, economic freedom, capitalism on the one end and sort of government control, socialism on the other end. Um, and that's what it is. And it's, it's a continuum. I mean, there's no bright line between socialism and capitalism. It's really the reality is every country has elements of both capitalism and elements of socialism and some have more or less. The, and that's what we're trying to measure. It's a big data project. I know you guys are in the data around here. Um, it's literally hundreds of thousands of numbers, tax rates, tariff rates, how many days it takes to start a business, monetary supply numbers, just, just for 160 countries, we have data back to the 70s. So it's a very large data So it's like a, a continually updating this is, is, is the effort. And so I see here, I'm looking at the website right now, and, and uh, the last published one is, you have a report for 2019, but the data is up to 2017. It takes a while to yeah, get take, the data. Yeah, it takes about a year for the data collecting agencies that we use to collect it, and then another year for us to get our act together and publish it ourselves. So we're always about two years behind. It's really more like a year and a half, but uh, I, I like to be, I'm an academic, I want to be honest. If I'm putting out a report that uses uh, 2017 numbers, I'm not going to call it a 2019 report. I, I, well, I'll call it a report. It's 2019 is the year we do it. But I, I want to be honest with my readers about the year. I'm, I'm uh, So we're always like two light years behind, two data years behind. And the scores here, I'm looking at it, there's like five categories, right? That you talked about uh, uh, size of government, legal system, property rights, sound money. Freedom to trade and uh, to trade internationally and regulation, and one thing that I is that right? Yeah. Okay. And one thing that I noticed in the writing is that um, you've been also thinking about uh, personal freedoms also in, inside of it. Like uh, you, you, you have a gender-adjusted things about about how uh, men and women are treated in the society and yeah. so on. It it is an economic freedom index. It's really only looking at that narrow aspect of our lives, dealing with buying and selling, producing, consuming, you know, stuff like that, hiring and firing, the economic side of of life. We did add a, a an adjustment for gender inequality in the legal system when it comes to economic matters. So it's not so much about sexism in a in a sort of cultural sense. Or outcomes in terms of uh, gender or, pay gap absolutely. or something no, like it's, that. It's, right. For example, uh, the World Bank has this data set, and what, what it does is they basically count all these different laws and if they apply evenly to men or women or not. So, for example, can you work at night? Uh, in many countries, there are restrictions on women working at night that don't apply to men. And we, we basically collect all of the data we get and we, we, and we score the countries for that. And that, and it's, but it's all economic stuff. It's like, can you work at night? Can you inherit property in the same way work? as a man? Can you, you know, all these things. So it's, it's not about, um, gender outcomes or cultural aspects to, to, you know, female, gender inequality, which are important, but that's not what we're going to do, you know? All right, so let me let me just start now taking the the the, the index as a as a hook here uh, and talk about Venezuela. So you mentioned Venezuela as as is the first chapter of the book, is your first visit, uh, maybe maybe not necessarily the first visit chronologically, but the first one presented in the book. And Venezuela was ranked top ten in your index in 1970. Yeah, there were fewer countries, so they were like tenth out of fifty. But still, very highly scored. Still, it was a country that you uh, know one would look and perceive as perhaps not completely prosperous as 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 uh, Europe or, or the U.S. at that point in time, but on its way, uh, a country with a lot of resources, a country with with a, a really well established system, and now they rank dead last. So, what was your experience in Venezuela? Well, it was pretty dystopic, frankly. Uh, we we went to the border of Venezuela and Colombia. We went to the city on the Colombian side called Cucuta, and. Uh, You may have seen on the news these bridges and these 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 two two bridge crossings between the countries, where every day, at least when we were there, every day thousands and thousands, without exaggeration, tens of thousands over the course of a day, are crossing from Venezuela into Colombia to buy food. 
and these sort of makeshift stalls have been established on the Colombian side where Colombian entrepreneurs are showing up. And, and people are coming. We talked to one couple, Apollo and Ana Maria. They'd come three days, one way. So it's a six-day round trip. And they were middle-class people. He worked in a hotel. You know, they had a little bit of English. They were not peasants by any means. And they, they were doing a six-day trip to buy rice and beans. Uh, and that, that's, I mean, that's dystopic. I mean, and they left their child behind with family. I mean, can you imagine how bad life would have to be in your personal circumstances to think it's a good idea to get in your car in Austin and drive to Vancouver for food and leave your most precious you know, child behind in, in a risky drive. And, you know, it's just, it's terrible. It was actually emotionally wrecking to see the, the, the people there. Um, and, and talk, we were talking to them as they were going through. It was, it was, it was a tale of two cities though. I mean, the Colombian side's a bustling, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are crazy people, you know, trying to, to, you know, get the Venezuelans who are coming over. Uh, fun story is that Venezuela has massive hyperinflation, as you know, something like 80,000% in most recent years. Uh, people were literally bringing in suitcases full of cash, uh, and then they would trade it for a very small amount of Colombian pesos. And uh, they don't even count the, the, the bolivars; they just uh, weigh them. And, you know, it's easier to weigh, weigh the weigh the bills than it is to count them. So, um, and then so they and then they buy their rice and beans. And um, I'm surprised that trade is still exists. I mean, who actually is willing to hold the bolivars? Yeah, uh, so the, you know, on the Colombian side. So, so. I mean, obviously, they're getting a huge black market exchange rate there. It's pretty bad. And I think that what what they can do is they can quickly sell them back um it's obviously a terrible rate but somehow or another that that works for them so yeah yeah it's yeah, yeah. trying to like uh, bob thanks for joining us but try, uh, trying to make that link a little bit more explicit for those that don't understand very well indexes and the categories that carlos mentioned about uh, sound government and uh, the various things that come uh, with it in the index of economic freedom um what it means in practical terms to have economic freedom versus not having it in the context of your experience writing this book. Uh, uh, I think about it as an enabler, but I would like to for listeners to, to, to get your take. Well, the basic idea of economic freedom or capitalism, if you want to use that term, is a decentralized decision-making system about economics. That is to say, the, the decisions about what we produce, how we produce those things, uh, what food we grow, how we grow the food. Uh, the, the decisions you and I make at the store about what we buy, the consumer decisions, all of these decisions are being made by the individuals themselves. And there's no, there's no plan. There's no bureaucracy above them telling farmers, okay, you're going to grow broccoli. You're going to grow alfalfa sprouts or whatever. I don't know, whatever. There's a lot of plans, but they are decentralized, but, right? Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, the individual farmer has to have a plan for his farm, but absolutely. there's no plan for farming. There's no plan for uh, car manufacturing. There are car manufacturers who make cars, and they need to plan the manufacture of those cars. But there's no government agency or overarching agency that's in charge of, of these things. Uh, and everything, decisions all the way down. I mean, what kind of occupation you choose as, as a person? Do you want to become a doctor, a lawyer? Do you want to you know, become a plumber? All those decisions are decentralized. That's the essence of an economically free system, is decentralized decision-making. Socialist systems of various t types want to have a central plan. They want to have a, a, and usually that means a government entity. It doesn't always mean that, but it usually means government entity is going to be centrally planning. There's going to be an agency that's, okay, we are in charge of broccoli <laughs> and we need to decide which farms make the broccoli, which farmers are assigned to make 
to work on those broccoli farms. We need to decide where the broccoli gets shipped to the stores, what the price of the broccoli will be when we sell it to consumers. All of that stuff has to be decided by a central agency. Um, capitals and market systems don't have any central agency. It just sort of happens spontaneously from the bottom. Uh, that's the difference. And we're trying to measure that with data, you know, with the index. But uh, that's basically the difference. But how do you, so in a country like Venezuela that started out being free by, all me, by, by the measures you have, right, to get to be completely unfree, uh, what was the process like to get there? Was that, was well, that... Yeah, unlike a lot of other places where it was quite discreet, uh, Venezuela gradually moved that way. And, they, and this, it, it predates Chavez, frankly. Uh, but they began, for example, before Chavez to aggressively, the government began to aggressively favor Venezuelan industry over external industry. Textures industry. And, and so tax subs import substitution is called. Uh, and that was the, and that didn't go well. So Chavez in many ways was a response to that. And he promised uh, a new socialist revolution. We're going to fix all these problems. And they began to do the, th they began to centralize. Uh, they national, of course, the oil industry was nationalized. Uh, but it's, it's gotten to the point where large sec sections of the agricultural sector are national, nationalized. They're owned by the government. They're government farms. Uh, I mean, it's factories, shoe factories, clothing mills, uh, uh, hotels. I mean, literally the government of Venezuela has nationalized hotels. So it's not complete socialism. There's still, you know, like little individual stores are still privately owned and things. There are some private companies. But the government is now essentially in a position of, of running major aspects of the of the Venezuelan economy. And at, at, at some point, we use the word socialism right. for that. What do you think, Bob, is in the minds, like following this narrative, um, um, I, I, uh, I, I saw one of, later we're going to have a conversation today uh, on, on the book uh, with a larger audience. And in one of your slides, I saw that you have a tweet by Michael Moore. And he says, quote, most polls now show young adults 18 to 35, across America, prefer socialism to capitalism, end quote. And I removed something from the quote because he puts something in parentheses. When he says, American prefer socialism, parentheses, fairness, to capitalism, parentheses, selfishness. Um, well, if, if that's the choice, I think that all of us prefer fairness to selfishness. Uh, is that what is in the minds of people that advocate for socialism? Or, or, or is the narrative about centralized... Uh, systems versus decentralized systems. Why is this so popular among uh, um, many people? What What do you think? In the book, you you, you did a, a little bit of a, 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 a count a trip that is interesting, and, and tell us a little bit about that. So yeah, so I think a lot of people do think capitalism means selfishness, and socialism means fairness. I think they think that. I, I don't think the evidence suggests that. If you look at socialist countries, they haven't been terribly fair in real life. Uh, if you look at capitalist countries. They've actually been pretty fair for lots of lots of people for various reasons. Uh, so, um, but it, it's not wrong though that that people believe these things to be true. One of the things we did for the book is we went to Chicago. One of our trips was to go to the socialism the socialism conference in Chicago. It's it builds itself as the largest gathering of socialists in the United States. Something like two thousand people attend this conference in Southside Chicago. Um, they call each other comrade. It's it's a little bit of a strange experience for me at least. Um, And we weren't there to to, to play gotcha with the, with the, the young, and they were mostly young people. Uh, we were just genuinely curious as to why they're they're they call themselves comrades. Why are they calling? They, they think socialism is a good idea. There's a very there's a bunch of different types of people we ran into. There's people that really just don't understand what socialism is. They just think it means fairness. They just think it means we're I want a fairer world. Well, I do too. I'm sure you do. You do too. I mean, I want a fairer world. 
the question is, how do we achieve that? And they somehow have latched on this idea that giving government control over the economy is going to make things fair. Well, it hasn't actually made things fair anywhere it's been tried, and that's why we went to Venezuela and Cuba and other places for the book. But we did run into a few people uh, who were a little bit more sophisticated, and they were advocating a democratic socialism, as if putting democratic in front of the word changes it. Um, and uh, we explicitly talk about this in our, in our book. Uh, democratic socialism turns out to be pretty much a myth. Um, at the larger scales where it's been tried, it's failed. Uh, Venezuela is one case that started out democratically. Chavez was democratically elected. Maduro, at least once, was probably democratic elected. I don't think the last election anyone thinks was fair. But um, And the, the, the problem with democratic socialism is it concentrates power in the hands of a tiny few people. And socialism doesn't work as an economic system. That's empirically true. And so what happens if you have a democratic system and an economy that's failing is people usually will vote the rascals out. But of course, the rascals don't want to get voted out. So what happens is democratic so socialist country, countries, the economies fail, and then the politicians running those economies got to get rid of the democracy because they know if they keep democracy, they're going to get, they're going to get voted out. Uh, and that's played out. In most places, it wasn't even democratic in the first place. I mean, there was no point in time where the Bolsheviks or Mao was democratic. So the other big cases of socialism around the world were never democratic at all. But, but uh, democratic socialism, I think, is we just get socialism in the end. The other thing is socialism from below. It's sort of they, these people at the conference were advocating a type of socialism, very micro socialism, like small worker-run enterprises, kind of communes, kibbutzim. I don't know exactly what, what they have in mind. They're in a very little, little bit vague. But the idea is we're going to have a, a group of workers collectively own the enterprise, and they're going to vote on the business decisions of the, of the firm. I have no problem with that. I don't think it's going to be very efficient. I don't think you're going to get the economies of scale. I think there's a lot of economic problems with those types of enterprises. But if you want to start a worker-run co-op restaurant or shoe We have factory. some good beer beer co-ops in town that yeah, work that way, but but that's about that's fine, craft but, beer. <laughs> but the scale on that's going to be pretty limited. Right. You're, you're not, <laughs> not going to get an iPhone uh, from that kind of enterprise. It's just never going to happen. To make an iPhone requires literally the cooperative efforts of millions and millions of people, massive supply chains, tens of thousands of coders. Completely decentralized. Right? And, and that's just never going to happen in a, an old worker-run enterprise. So I'm okay with it. I mean, there's no, there's no law against running a worker-run enterprise. You know, it's just not going to be very efficient. We, we'll all be poorer if you want to. If you want to move the entire economy that way, you're going to have to force us to because it's it. There's no other choice. We're not going to voluntarily give up our standard of living so we can have worker-run co-ops to make all our food, our, our groceries, and you know, clothes and things. So let's go back to the book here to Cuba. Next next chapter was Cuba, and and uh, um, uh, that's the trip that I. I wanted, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you recommend or not, but uh, the, the experience is no, pretty terrible. interesting. It's but terrible. it's an interesting, I mean, the understand, seeing it, 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 it uh, must have been a, an interesting. Yeah, it was, it was interesting. Uh, I mean, the place is falling apart, literally. Um, That's the sad part, it's, of it's course. It's dangerous. Um, it, it's, I, I really do worry that tourists will go there someday and, and before and like get hurt and it's it's really a tough place um like it's not violence, violence? It's not, no, 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 no 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 violence no, no. Okay. I mean, literally like crumbling buildings i see uh, i see uh, the, capital, the capital is actually falling apart yeah, literally right? you, like the physical capital you know you have to worry about buildings falling off on your head as you're walking down the street it is that bad uh and, and but it, it's not it's not terribly unpleasant in, in in a general in a general sense but it's extremely strange the thing about cuba is that it's just strange it's weird there are no advertising 
that's not a function of being poor. I mean, I've been to Jamaica. Uh, Jamaica's got advertising everywhere. And Jamaica's poor, probably about as poor as Cuba. Um, and there's advertisements everywhere. I mean, you can, there's no shortage of it. And that's weird. Uh, there's no boats. There's no airplanes. There's no sailboats. There's no cars, hardly. We, In the Caribbean, know. no boats. Yeah, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very eerie place. Um, the, the, the contrast between the private and public in Cuba, there's a little bit of private. I enterprise. wanted to touch on that. The, the, the restaurants and hotels shocking. examples was shocking. Mm-hmm. Right, right. They really are shocking. I've never, I mean, the, the one hotel, the government hotel we went to, Hotel Caribe in, in Havana, in central Havana, it was, uh, I mean, they left the soap from the previous guests sitting there. I mean, it was, it was the most disgusting place I've ever been. And I, I'm old enough to remember really bad roadside hotels in the United States. This was something else entirely, but, uh, but they do have these private Casa Particulares that, that are basically Airbnb top operations. And uh, in fact, you can actually, oddly enough, get them on Airbnb because Cubans in Miami will set up an account for their relatives on the island. and Because you can't use your credit card on the island. The American embargo prevents that. So, uh, so, so the, but you go to very lovely little, little places with good air conditioning and a coffee maker and water. Water was probably excellent food. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. And the food and the rest, the private restaurants that have been legalized, uh, are, you can't find them. You literally can't find the private restaurants because there's no signs anywhere. It'd just be a, a door in the middle of a bomb, what looks like a bombed out building. And that's a restaurant. You have to be directed there by a, you know, a taxi driver or somebody will get you there. Um, but you go into the restaurants, like, wow, this is a nice restaurant. The government run restaurants, we walked out of a couple. They were just, I mean, they were, I mean, again, public school cafeterias are improvement over what we saw there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, there was really that the very, very limited amount of private enterprise. And those are the two little carve outs is that some, you can rent out home, like rooms and homes, and you can have very small private restaurants. Those are the two kind of carve out exceptions. And they're very recent. They've only been legal about 10, 15 years. Um, in the Cuban economy, but everything else is government run. Uh, and it's the government that prevents the car. The reason there are no cars isn't the U.S. embargo. It's because the Cuban government won't let cars come in. Um, there's no reason you, but, you know, our embargo doesn't stop the Brazilians from sending cars to Cuba, Mexicans, you know, whatever. So uh, the reason there's so, so few cars is, has nothing to do with the U.S. policy, which is a dumb policy, but that's a, a different story, right? Separate right. Story. No, so we, we, you know, economists, statisticians, we have a hard time assigning causality to things and you know one might say well is it socialism really that drove those places into into ruin and so on and one of the countries you visit of course is North Korea where is perhaps one of the cleanest natural experiments we have seen in terms of uh, a place that actually got reminded in the book that the north was richer the north was more developed than the south before the Korean War. A lot richer. A lot richer, exactly. And and then, you know, there's a there's a separation of the country. One goes capitalist, the other one doesn't. And I mean same Korean, same religion, same past, same, same past. language, same everything. Right? Yeah, we've we've had a number of these natural experiments. We have North and South Korea and we had East and Western Germany. That would be we my have next Cubans question. in Cuba and Cubans <laughs> in Miami, very different experiences. Uh, so in every case, of course, the 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 socialist side suffered dramatically. To be clear, we didn't actually go into North Korea. We went to the border of China and North Korea, the northern North Korea border, the city of Dandong on the China side. And uh, our wives were quite adamant about this particular uh, idea. No North Korea was, was, the, was the rule. Um, but we did, uh, you know, sort of survey the landscape. We were as close, you could see the North Koreans on the other side of the, of the river. It's a small river. So um, it's not like the DMZ in the South uh, Korea, North Korea border, which you can't see anything. So uh, we were able to see it. it it's quite dilapidated and, and at dark at night. Um, many people may have seen the satellite photo of the Korean Peninsula where the entire northern side, except for the capital, is 
is all dark. I mean, you know, at night there's no lights. Uh, on the southern side, of course, and the China side is all lit up like a Christmas tree, and that's not a Photoshop. I mean, uh, when when you when you look across the river from the Chinese side into to the North Korean side, there's three or four hundred thousand people living over there, but it's completely dark at night. They have no power, uh, and the China side is um, Dandong is not Shanghai, but it's a very impressive modern, uh, you know, Chinese capitalist city. It's a huge trading center. So. And you didn't see the similar, the similar sort of like across the river uh, commerce that you saw in Colombia uh, between Colombia and Venezuela. That was not taking. No, they're, they're not really allowed to travel. There's a train that you can take from one to the other. It's heavily controlled. Uh, there was a, obviously there was smuggling going on. There were these little entrepreneurs in speedboats offering to take us into North Korea. What they would do is they go up the river and then they'd find a little tributary river stream or something and they'd go up into the, the stream into North Korea proper. And I think the deal is they would go up maybe a few kilometers and then they would pull in and then North Koreans would come and sell items because there were Chinese tourists gawking at North Korea just like we were. We weren't, we were, it was a lot of tourists going to the city kind of, oh, there's North Korea. It's kind of, a, so we didn't take that trip, American passport. It would be a terrible idea to go into North Korea illegally. It's a bad idea to go in legally. But, it could not end uh, well for it, sure. It, <laughs> so we did not. But they, so there's, and so there's a little bit of small smuggling type trade going on, clearly. I'm sure they're bribing the, the guards to, to make this happen. Uh, we bought on the Chinese side, we bought North Korean beer, which was toxic. It was the toxic <laughs> thing I've ever, ever drunk. I've, it's, it is, we couldn't finish the beer. I've never not finished a beer in my life. Uh, this beer was undrinkable. Um, so, the, and you, you know, you could see these North Korean handy, handy make works and things like, you know, clothing and you know, things that people had made in, in their homes. So there was a smuggling operation, but otherwise not much. Um, the the river in most places is mined. So uh, and then there's guards on uh, guard. You could see the guard towers every few hundred meters. It'd be a, uh, a weirdly they paint their they paint them like Smurf blue. It's a very like baby blue. It's a strange color to paint your guard towers. I mean you can see them though they're very visible. So I guess that's why they do it though. So you mentioned the capitalist cities of China, right? So I think in the book you call it fake socialism, uh, what China is these days. And I think that speaks to the, the whole notion of the control of means of production. Uh, China these days, that's no longer the case. Yeah, it wasn't always fake. Of course, Mao right. was real socialism and, you know, tens of millions of people died for that. Um, we talk about, you know, the Cultural Revolution and the, the Great Leap Forward before it in the book. But now uh, they've given it up. There's no central plan. Chinese bureaucrats aren't deciding how many acres of broccoli get planted. They just, they've, they've privatized the farms. Individual farmers decide what products they're, they're going to make, how they market them. They get the best It's a non-democratic capitalist system. Yeah, right? that's the strange it's, it's, thing. It's, it's the, that's the schizophrenia right, of China right. is that they're trying to maintain a totalitarian, controlled, top-down control political system, but letting the economy be more of a decentralized bottom-up system. That's not an, uh, 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 there's obviously a tension there. Um, we saw the, ourselves, and we talk about it in the book, uh, we went to a conference uh, and talked about Ayn Rand and Friedrich Hayek at a Chinese conference about a mile from Tiananmen Square in Beijing. It was really cool. And scary. It was, it was no. It was, <laughs> it was thirty professors, Chinese professors, talking about Ayn Rand. I'm like, this is the most surreal thing I've ever ever experienced. <laughs> but the next day, the government shut that conference down uh, violently. They showed up with thugs. They literally padlocked the chained the doors of the of the building. People were still inside the building, actually. And they, they locked them in and locked us, us out. I, actually, Ben and I had already left, but they left the, the remaining participants. So, and the reason is you're free in China now to buy and sell. 
and get rich. And they, I mean, what's the statistic? They're producing a billionaire an hour or something, right? <laughs> I mean, it's some absurd number. You're free. You're now free to get rich and prosper and start a business, uh, hire and fire, import. You can do all the economic freedoms, more or less, not all of them. There's still some issues, of course. Um, but you can't criticize the government. You can't talk about the ideas of Friedrich Hayek and Ayn Rand, uh, apparently. And um, that's 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 a schizophrenia. I call it a schizophrenia. I mean, you're, you're on the one hand kind of sane, and the other hand, you're you're insane. You know, I don't think it'll end. It, this this can survive. I mean, in the very long run, Friedman it, thinks the same, right? Those yeah. these two things are not compatible in the long run. Well, yeah, this particular combination is probably easier than the other combinations. Mm -hmm. It's sure. it's it's almost impossible to be democratic and socialist. Uh, it's possible to be autocratic and capitalist, but even there, there are tensions. Correct. So the, the, you mentioned East and uh, West Germany. So I'm very surprised that from a beer perspective, you did not choose to write a chapter on that split. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the Czech, the well, former we, Czech yeah, Republic. That, no, yeah. just East and West Germany. Yeah, I mean, sure. the, the, I'm, I, I don't know if the beers are actually better in West, but I would uh, guess right. the beers are better in the West. <laughs> well, today the beers are probably good in the East. Uh, but there's still, there must be some still lingering effects. And there are. I mean, we know in the data, there's still a lot of lingering effects. The East is still struggling in some ways and it's been 30 years. Right. But, Uh, but it wasn't very dramatic. Uh, we thought about doing one on national socialism as a brand, a type of socialism. Mm -hmm. we, all of our examples are really Marxian socialism. They're very different types of socialisms. But uh, honestly, we wanted to be funny in this book. And there's no, there's no that, politically right. safe way to do that. And, and I wouldn't want to get involved in that anyway. So uh, so we, 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 we didn't do that. But we, you know, we've talked about maybe a right-wing version of, of a book like this, maybe uh, – nationalism sucks or something and um as a sequel or something you know that's because you know the, the right wing ver this is the left wing version of top-down control that we're there's a right wing version of top-down control that i think is equally pernicious uh and and we don't we don't really talk about also it fail every, every and it's it's also it's, it's a try they get yeah, exactly exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so a, a very bright spot in the book is, is Georgia, something that I actually knew very little about, former Soviet Republic of Georgia, that um, apparently was able to rise up in your ranks very, very quickly in the past 20 years. And tell us about that story. Well, I don't have a score for Georgia in Soviet times, but it would have been a two out of 10. I mean, whatever. Uh, t today, they're about an eight out of 10, and they're in the top. I think they're 13th now in the most recent report. They've been in the top 10. So Georgia has gone from being a Soviet republic, as socialist as socialism gets, more or less, to being a country that is kind of economically free, that's on par with places like the United States. It's still pretty poor because it's still you know growing now. So um, what's the level of, of prosperity you say Georgia is right uh, now? They've Close. gone, I mean, since the since the reforms began, which the reforms really began in the, the mid-2000s, around 2004 and 2005, um, GDP's probably gone from about $3,000 a person to seven or $8,000 a person, which is a very, they're growing. They were mad that last year's growth rate was only 5%, right? <laughs> so uh, we would all be deliriously happy at 5%, right? So they've had very, very strong growth. Um, now, again, when you start at $3,000 ahead, it's, it's going to take a, a generation or more to reach middle or higher income status, but I have no doubt that they'll do that. The reforms there are amazing, though. I mean, we list the reforms. I've got to, I go to Georgia a lot. Um, but uh, alcohol became kind of a running theme. One of the really cool stories about Georgia is it's probably the birthplace of wine, as far as we know, that we think it's the first place on earth that wine was ever made. And they have, to this day, varietals of, of grapes that don't exist anywhere else in the world. Uh, something like four dozen different varieties that don't exist. And uh, in Soviet times, they made 
wine because Soviet central planters weren't morons. They knew Georgia's and made wine, but they made really bad Merlot and Cabernet, like, you know, French style stuff and billions of gallons of really bad wine. But since the reforms, since the economic reforms in Georgia, the wine business is coming back and it's becoming a big tourist operation, a big export operation. And they're bringing back the old classic Georgian wines, not just the, not just the grapes, but also the winemaking style, which is very different. And all of that entrepreneurial activity in Georgia today around the wine business, uh, it was not possible in Soviet times because the central planners in Moscow didn't care about saving, you know, obscure local grapes. They wanted to make massive amounts of Merlot for, you know, tens of millions of Russians and Ukrainians to drink. The central planners didn't place any priority on on the quality of the wine or the types of wines or the history of the wine. Uh, and all that's coming in, now that the Georgians are, are free to make these choices for themselves, all that's coming back. It's really a great scene. Uh, if you're a wine snob, you got to go to Georgia. So what's the, what's the, what, how do they, were able to actually implement these reforms? How, you know, what was the process? They to, had a, to... they had a little mini second revolution. So they broke apart from the Soviet Union in 91, but they, they didn't really do much for about a decade or more. They had a little revolution called the Rose Revolution in 2004. Misha, Mikhail Shakashvili became president. He's a very Western oriented guy, wears Italian, you know, wool suits. He's very sophisticated. He went to Columbia Law School. And he, but he hired um, a guy named Kaha Bendukidza. And Kaha is a 400-pound chemical engineer uh, who cusses like I've never heard anyone cuss and takes no prisoners. He's just – and he's a fanatic. He's literally the muscle. He's a fanatic libertarian too. Oh. And Misha says, the economy is terrible. We don't know what we're doing. Kaha, you're in charge. And it was democratically elected, but they, he's, he started just, just doing crazy reforms. He would walk into a – here's a great story. He'd walk into a government office – random office in the Georgian bureaucracy. He would a ask the clerk, okay, how many people work here? How, what's your payroll? How many people are on the payroll? And then, you know, it'd be 84. Okay, 84 people. How many are here right now? It's Thursday at three o'clock in the afternoon. How many are here right now? 10. Okay, you 10 keep your job. 74 who aren't here right now are all fired. He, they literally fired 80% of the Georgian bureaucracy. They fired 35,000 police officers in a single day. Uh, the entire National Road Police uh, was fired uh, because they were corrupt. They were just shaking down people for bribes on streets, and they fired them all. So they did this radical sort of shock reforms. Uh, they lowered, there's only four types of taxes in Georgia, the top income tax, they don't even have a payroll tax. The top tax rate is 20%, and that includes the payroll tax. Uh, no tariffs, zero tariffs, 0, 0.0. They, they, they run in a radical privatization um, Radical, well. and, and the cool thing about their privatizations is they did it on the up and up. They had open, transparent auctions, highest bidder, single bidder auctions, regular auctions. Um, and if you were Russian and you were the highest bidder, you got it, which wasn't always popular in Georgia. But the Georgian government says, we're going to privatize in a free and fair way, and we're not going to just give it to our cousin, or, you know, give all these assets, these Georgian assets. We're not going to give it to our brother-in-law and our, you know, our niece and nephew and get a kickback from them. And that's how it was done in most of the Soviet Union is a terribly corrupt privatization process. Georgia didn't do it that way. Yeah, and, and, and you see other places that, that had, had tried to do like radical um, uh, market-oriented reforms. Um, it was hard sometimes through the political through a free political system because, you know, the reforms don't pay off immediately, and the political system are very short term, 
uh, centric. And and uh, for example, you know, I'm from Brazil. The types of reforms that we tried to do in the 90s quickly led to a very strong left-wing government, and then you know, 16 years later, bankrupt the country, and and it's it's a slow but surely process to to, to go downwards, right? And now again, we get a, a president that's trying to f- put some market-oriented reforms in place. But it's costly. It takes a while, and and you know there's some positive indication going on in Brazil right now. But still, it's to be seen whether whether they, they will be successful. Another example, of course, is Chile, where it was done from an autocratic system, and 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 the the um, I guess in the index again, I was looking at Chile. Chile, I, I'm I think Chile embodies a lot. What one of my worries these days is that the what happened in Chile is phenomenal. In 1990, Chile was poorer than Brazil. Yeah. Chile is almost twice as rich than Brazil right now on a per capita basis. Uh, if you look at your index, it goes a skyrocket to freedom, right? And, and then now it's pretty high, one of the, in the top quartile of, of a quintile in, in the world. And now people are throwing bombs at buildings. Yeah. I mean, uh, what gives? How do we <laughs> manage this? Yeah, it, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, the success of free, free market economies in producing the stuff, the goods and services, the housing, the clothing, the food, the entertainment, the, the evidence of how good that system is, is just overwhelming. And yet, um, having delivered it, um, people are still unsatisfied with, oh, there's, because we still live in a world of scarcity. There's still things in this world that we would like to see fixed or done, done differently. And no system is ever going to fix all that, everything. Um, and yet the system that, that is so good. You're like, Chile was, was really poor. Um, and it, it, I don't understand exactly. Uh, I think some of it is just ignorance of the way the world works. People don't realize how bad these top-down systems actually function. And then someone comes along, some politician comes along and says, hey, I'm going to fix the problems. And there are problems in America and problems in Chile. There are problems in these. And, <clears throat> but turning over the keys to the economy to a few bureaucrats in Washington isn't going to fix those problems. Mario, how do we wrap? One can we wrap up on a positive note? How do we do that? Well, I, I don't know if this is a positive <laughs> note or not. Uh, I mean, uh, there is tensions there for sure. I mean, it seems that people are hardwired to feel attracted to some notion of fairness. And perhaps the narrative has to do with the fact that we evolve in a, in a world where, sure, if somebody else got water and more water and more food, that means that I got less water and less food. So that narrative is still somehow attractive and hardwired into our minds. Of course, we know now that there is a system, free market, that uh, can actually lift everybody up in, in, in marvelous and amazing ways. Uh, so, but, but I would like, to, maybe this is a fun note to, to end and wrap up. Uh, some reactions I imagine to your book may be on the direction of like, why beer? You're tri- trivializing this. But like, so this obviously after this conversation, all of us could agree that this is not a trivial issue. Like this, the, 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 the prosperity and peaceful uh, uh, prospects of ha- living together are at stake. About uh, and what system do we choose to organize society is not trivial. Uh, so why beer? I mean, like, it was wasn't anything more interesting here, Bob? And like, uh, well, we well, didn't, I, I think yeah, beer is very interesting yeah, for the record. Well, I but. mean, we didn't set out to write a book about beer and socialism um, at all. Although we drink a lot of beer, and beer was in the book, and the publisher actually was the one that really pushed us to put beer on the cover, and we even changed the title to "Drink Their Way Through the Unfree World" instead of "Travel Through the Unfree World." Um, 
But, and we don't want to trivialize it. And, and if you read the book, I mean, there, we talk about the Great Leap Forward. We talk about the body counts. We talk about the, the assassinations. We, you know, we, we, we have some sobering statistics in there. Uh, but when you want to talk about it on a podcast like this or in a public talk, you, you know, you'll want to just recite a bunch of statistics. I've already written those articles. No one read them, right? So um, uh, we want to r- write something that's, that's interesting. And beer became a very quick metaphor. And it's just a metaphor. It's not a beer book, but it's a metaphor. You know, in Cuba, there's only two types of beer. And you think that, oh, well, who needs more than two types of beer? Well, if you've been to, if you if you only had two types every day for the rest of your life, you would eventually re- <laughs> realize that's kind of, well, for lack of, it sucks. And it's not only beers, right? <laughs> there are only two types of shirts, two types of That's of, right. Of, so, but beer was a you know, useful thing. And so the Venezuelans have actually had trouble making beer because the, shortages. they've had shortages. And Um, the Korean beer was was toxic. And so we, the beer became a very useful, and then the wine in Georgia, all of the alcohol became a useful way to sort of quickly encapsulate the functioning of the economy. But it's not just about beer. You're right. It's about uh, all whatever you care about. It's going to be better provided in a, in a bottom-up, decentralized market economy than in these top-down c- controlled economies. Um, but beer w- became a very good way. And also, we, we Ben and I are high-functioning alcoholics, so we... Uh, emphasis on the high functioning part of that, but uh, you know, so when we travel, we we drink. That's what we do, and and that made it into the book because it's it was a basically a travel log uh, of our trips. Well, it's uh it's lunchtime and you're traveling, so why don't we go get a beer? Thanks for joining us, Apollo Simicom. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Before we wrap up. You can get more information in our Medium page. Thanks for listening to Policy at McCombs. See you next time.